AM American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to episode 14, An Army Amongst Us. I talked last week about the Stamp Act of 1765, and it's important to have some familiarity with that event in order to fully understand the feelings permeating the American colonies when another act was passed that further infuriated the colonists, the Quartering Act. Now, in 1765, following the French and Indian War, the British faced a sizable financial crisis. In addition to managing a massively bloated national debt, the Crown faced the imminent return of thousands of soldiers from North America, a situation that would only compound British financial woes. Now, if Parliament allowed the French and Indian War veterans to return immediately after the conclusion of the war, then Britain would be flooded with thousands of soldiers demanding continued payment of their salaries, as well as others who would retire and expect pensions. This financial burden was simply too much for Parliament to bear. Conveniently, an Indian insurrection, known as Pontiac's Rebellion, broke out on the Western frontier immediately following the French and Indian War. And in response, Parliament concluded that the colonists needed protection provided directly by the royal government. This protection came in the form of a significant garrison of British troops, numbering around 10,000. These troops were stationed mainly in forts on the western frontier and charged with halting any Indian attempts at eastward movement or settlement raids. In mandating this policy, some members of Parliament genuinely cared for the well-being of the colonies and sought to provide them with protection from the dangers of the frontier. However, others primarily saw the financial advantage of extending the army's tour of duty and the colonies. By keeping 10,000 troops on active duty, Parliament would pay for far fewer pensions, and it could mandate that the colonies themselves pay the salaries of the active troops in the colonies. It was a solution that would prevent a major monetary loss in the midst of tough, tough financial times. The Quartering Act was mainly a logistical act, passed to define the way in which this massive defensive force could be housed and provided for, being that it was half a world away from its supreme commanders. The text of the law mandated that troops be housed first in British barracks in forts, towns, or cities. This was perfectly normal because barracks had been built precisely for this purpose of housing the troops. However, the act continued specifying procedures for housing troops in the event that the local barracks were full. In this case, British soldiers were given permission to find an inn, public house, tavern, or any other large space with beds intended to accommodate overnight guests. When the soldiers found such a place, the innkeeper or tavern owner was compelled by the Quartering Act to accommodate or quarter the troops. In addition, he or she was required to provide a meal and a serving of beer or rum for each soldier. Compensation was to be worked out with the government of the appropriate colony, which the Quartering Act required to pick up the tab. Think about this in the context of the Stamp Act again. The Stamp Act was passed on March 22, 1765, prompting a negative and sometimes violent reaction from the American colonists. The resistance to this act had been building for months before its passage, but the summer of 1765 was one of truly widespread protest. The Quartering Act was passed only two days after the Stamp Act, and it was like lemon juice on a paper cut, only much worse. The resistance to the Quartering Act was based on two main arguments. The first was the generally held belief that a standing army stationed among the colonists was a threat to their security and liberty. The colonists were not blind. 
After the end of major violence in Pontiac's Rebellion and the passage of the Quartering Act, British troops began moving eastward from the frontier into colonial towns and cities. This was detrimental to the colonists' security because, first of all, this movement left the frontier less guarded, and second of all, it meant more troops stationed among colonial civilians. Logically, this did not make sense. The Indians to the west were the true threat to the lives of the Englishmen in the colonies, so why would the British army move toward the very people they were ordered to protect? Why would they neglect what the colonists perceived to be their primary responsibility, i.e. the defense of the frontier? And wasn't this counterproductive? Many began to argue that it was because they, the colonists, were the new targets. Since talks of a Stamp Act began late in 1764, many patriots had become more and more outspoken in their opposition to the crown, as well as in questioning the legitimacy of its rule over the unrepresented North American colonies. When disillusionment with royal authority was widespread and the troops representing the king began to move toward the colonies, this was truly a cause for concern. As Stamp Act protests occurred and more British troops began, began appearing in and near New England cities, the colonists could not help but notice that the presence of the crown was growing unbearably oppressive. The Stamp Act and the Quartering Act marked a crucial shift in the attitude of the colonists toward the British Army. Before the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, when the French were a threat to the security of the colonies, the colonists were happy to support the stationing of British troops near or among them because this meant increased protection from a foreign enemy. However, after the war, the colonists' perception of the troops shifted, and they began to view them as armed enforcers, men whose primary function was to intimidate colonists, stifle opposition, and enforce wildly unpopular and tyrannical resolutions passed on the colonists without their consent. The colonists did not quietly abide the presence of a standing army, especially one that they themselves were paying for. However, this inconvenience was only one of two prevailing protests against the act, the other being the now familiar slogan of taxation without representation. Like the Stamp Act, the Quartering Act was passed by the British Parliament and the cost was then laid entirely on the American colonists. For many patriots, this constituted tyrannical activity by their mother country, and the unrest grew even stronger. The argument on the British side was that like all Englishmen, the colonists should pay their share of the bill for their defense. After all, they had just been defended from the French in a war, and now they were being defended from the threat of violent Indians in the West. The least they could do would be to put a roof over the heads of the, the soldiers and give them a warm meal. However, many of the colonists refused to accept this rationale. They argued that they had no say in the stationing of troops in North America after the French and Indian War, and they should not be forced to pay a cent for something for which they did not give consent. Colonial legislatures, feeling more powerless with the passage of each successive act, dealt with the Quartering Act in often devious ways. Because they were responsible for paying the soldiers' bills at taverns, inns, and pubs where they stayed, the colonial assemblies were faced with a choice. They could either comply with the act and raise taxes to cover these newly imposed costs, or they could refuse to comply and maintain the good graces of their people. As a result, the Quartering Act was circumvented in some way in every one of the colonies except Pennsylvania. The most radical example of defiance happened in New York in 1766. The New York Colonial Assembly, feeling the newly added financial burden of the Quartering Act, decided to only allot half of the required money to fund British troops lodging within the New York colony.
The result was a back-and-forth dispute between the colonial government and the royal government over the next few months, during which the British troops arriving from across the ocean had to remain aboard their ships. In the end, the New York Assembly withdrew all funding for the Quartering Act, and the king responded by forcibly dissolving the colonial legislature. New York finally gave in and allotted the proper funds three years later. The Quartering Act was allowed to expire, however, in 1767, after a two-year period of unending strife with the colonial legislatures. The resistance to the Act, along with the resistance to the Stamp Act, was simply too dangerous for Parliament to provoke any further. The Quartering Act itself was short-lived, and its effects were often dismissed by historians when compared to the more influential acts like the Stamp Act. But its legacy is much more relevant than it is reputed to be. In fact, the Quartering Act was included in several of our nation's founding documents. Ten years after the Act's expiration, the colonists still had not forgotten the Crown's attempts to station troops amongst them, and they still remembered it as a prime example of King George's scare tactics. Several lines of the Declaration of Independence refer to the Quartering Act and the military officers involved therein. Among the justifications for the Revolution, the Declaration recalls that he, the king, has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and to eat out their substance. He has kept among us, in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. Later in the Declaration, the authors reprimanded the king, quite frankly, for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. In addition, the Third Amendment of the Constitution was written as a direct result of the Quartering Act. This amendment unequivocally forbids the military from lodging soldiers in private establishments or homes without the consent of the owners. And finally, the Second Amendment, which is cited today for its provision for the American citizen's right to bear arms, actually owes its existence in many ways to the Quartering Act. The experience with the Act taught the Founding Fathers that standing armies in the midst of a civilian body were a threat to their security and liberty. Thus, at the establishment of the United States in 1789 with the drafting of the Constitution, the Founders decided that the United States would only have a very small active military, and in times of war, militia would be quickly assembled to do the bulk of the fighting. If this was to be an effective strategy, the citizens would need guns of their own with which to fight for their country. Thus, the full original text of the Second Amendment reads, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And so, this off-sided amendment has its foundations in the Quartering Act and the colonists' apprehension to a large standing army in the midst of the civilian body during a time of peace. The Quartering Act was just one in a growing list of controversial acts that were increasingly labeled oppressive by the American colonists. The forcible lodging of troops was an abridgment of the sanctity of the private establishments of Englishmen. Additionally, their lack of representation in the making of such decisions was disconcerting. The summer of 1765 brought a widespread feeling of unrest, a great deal of confusion, and the beginnings of the whispers of armed revolution, whispers which would only grow louder as the British oppression increased. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. 
If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.